I wasted time, and now doth time waste me. Richard II by William Shakespeare Sometime around 1595, William Shakespeare penned a new play, The Life and Death of King Richard II. If you couldn't already guess, it was a history play. History plays were all the rage at the time. However, it was still a daring endeavor because it depicted the deposition of a legitimate monarch. One shouldn't be too surprised that the current monarch of the time, Elizabeth I, who faced multiple coup and assassination attempts, may not have been the biggest fan of a deposition play. But the play went on, with the deposition scene typically removed. I say typically because there was one critical performance that included this classic and controversial scene. The Earl of Essex, Elizabeth's former favorite, paid to have the play performed with the deposition scene. This was because he was planning a revolt. It epically failed. However, Elizabeth, according to legend, was supposed to have said that she was Richard II. Is this true? Who was Richard II? Why was he so hated? Because the play only covers a very small portion of his life, and the audience would have been familiar with the whole story, we will spend our time today looking at the entire life and death of Richard II. Hello, and welcome to Breaking Bard, a ripe good scholar podcast. My name is Sarah, and every other Monday I am working to chip away at the wall surrounding Shakespeare studies that is bardolatry. You may have noticed that I lied to you at the end of the last episode. I said this was going to be about comedy of errors. It's obviously not. I decided to take that episode in a different direction, so we're jumping ahead to Richard II and we'll come back to Comedy of Errors. Anywho, I think it's important to understand at least some of what an Elizabethan audience would have understood about their own history. That is why I want to take the time to look at the whole life of Richard II, not just the end of it. It's made clear in the play that Richard played favorites and spent money he didn't really have. Elizabethan audiences would have understood just how true that really was. Now, if you live in England, you may already know about this. But many of us around the world don't, and I suppose it doesn't hurt to have a refresher. So with that, let's just jump right into it. Richard II was born in 1367 in one of the English-held territories in France. You see, his grandfather, Edward III, decided that he should be the French king when France found itself without an heir. His mother, Isabella, was the dead king's sister, so therefore... Edward should be king. But the French pulled out the long-ignored Salic law, saying females, or their descendants, couldn't take the French throne. This is probably because they weren't too excited about having an English. Richard's father, Edward, the Black Prince, fought valiantly in these wars, and was highly regarded as a great warrior. Edward was given rule over all the English-held territories in France when a treaty was signed. Unfortunately, he wasn't very good at keeping the people happy, so it ended up being pretty easy for the French crown to take back the land. 
Edward died trying to defend those lands. This was a problem because his son was a small child. Edward III was old. Nonetheless, Edward III started grooming Richard to be king. He died when Richard was 10 years old and the young boy became king. Now, obviously, a 10-year-old could not really be trusted to effectively rule an entire country, so that is where his uncles and parliament came in. This was a unique situation because an entire generation was essentially passed over for the crown. It led to some, well, animosity between the remaining sons. Basically, they all thought that they should rule. Since staging an actual coup was pretty difficult, they tried to rule through the child king. In particular, we have John of Gaunt, Edward III's third-born son, and his youngest, Thomas Woodstock. Parliament didn't want to deal with the family bickering and had an unprecedented amount of power. Because Edward II was such a disaster, Parliament now had the power to remove anyone from the royal council. In addition, the wars in France had drained the royal coffers, so Richard had to rely on the Lords of Parliament for money. It was within their power to set up the minority council that would rule on Richard's behalf. There was not one member of the royal family on this council, which had to rub a few people the wrong way. As it turns out, a bunch of quarreling nobles aren't super great at running a country either, and it wasn't long before the people revolted. This was known as the Peasants' Revolt, and there were a few key factors that led to the troubles. In order to pay for the wars in France, taxes were levied throughout the country. The financial burden fell disproportionately on the poor. Then, the Black Plague swept through and decimated the working population. This should have meant that workers could receive higher wages in a more competitive workplace. However, the lords didn't really want to have to pay the peasants any more than they already did. So they enforced a law that made it nearly impossible for a worker to change jobs and get a higher wage. The ruling nobles made another huge mistake by raising the poll tax again. It was the breaking point for the people, and they marched on London. Several high-profile leaders were killed, and Richard had to be secured in the tower for his own protection. After several days of this with no end in sight, they decided that the 14-year-old should clean up their mess, which he did. Richard spoke to the people and negotiated with the leaders. He made a lot of promises that he later went back on, but the overall situation improved and Richard stayed on the throne. For now. Richard's surprising success at the Peasants' Revolt likely boosted his already giant ego. All he had ever really known was being the most powerful person in England. He was raised to expect wealth and power. He was accountable to almost no one. It's not surprising then to learn that Richard believed in absolute monarchy. The idea that the king is chosen by God and therefore should be able to rule without any restriction. 
While this idea was not uncommon in the rest of Europe, in England, it wasn't a widely held belief. Hence, the powerful parliament. Richard was a beautiful young man with a bad temper and expensive tastes. He believed strongly in the power of ceremony and maintaining the look of a monarch. So, he had expensive taste and no money, and he believed in ultimate royal power, but was accountable to a powerful parliament. Do we see the problems brewing? Eventually, Richard came of age and was ready to rule on his own. He couldn't just take back control, though. He needed some powerful allies, which meant marriage. He chose well by marrying the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, Anne. His in-laws were some of the most powerful people in Europe, so it was hard for Parliament or anyone else to really argue with Richard. And so, Richard became king in his own right. To the surprise of no one, Richard immediately started spending money like it was unlimited and surrounding himself with favorites. Richard was extremely generous with his favorites. They were granted lands and titles, which bothered the other lords. They earned their titles by being born to the right family. It wasn't just handed to them. Anyway, Parliament tried a few times to intervene and curb Richard's spending. However, he refused to yield to their demands. His uncle, Thomas Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester, started talking about removing Richard from the throne. A daring thing to say openly. Unfortunately for Richard, John of Gaunt, who up until now had been a calming influence, was trying and failing to conquer some land in Spain. In the end, Michael de la Pole, the main architect behind Richard's marriage, was impeached on charges of embezzlement and negligence. Parliament was asserting its power. Richard was not too happy to have anyone trying to assert power over him, so he left the palace to go on a tour of northern England, where he had more allies. He worked quickly and quietly to gather support for the royalist cause. By this time, members of Richard by this time, members of Richard's family came together to form the Lord's Appellant and marched north to challenge Richard. The two armies met at Radcourt Bridge, and Richard was swiftly defeated. The king was returned to London and kept on house arrest in his own kingdom. The Lord's Appellant and what would come to be known as the Merciless Parliament put all of Richard's favorites on trial. They were either exiled or executed, while Richard was kept hidden in the background. In the end, while Richard was still technically king, the Lord's Appellant, specifically the Duke of Gloucester, ruled England. Fortunately for Richard, they weren't much better at ruling than he was, and John of Gaunt returned from Spain. For the next eight years, Richard ruled quietly and seemed to be cooperating with the Lord's Appellant. However, he was quietly pulling together a circle of support. Richard had lost his previous wife, Anne, in 1394. 
So, in 1396, he secured a peace with France by marrying the 12-year-old princess Isabella. This marriage also drastically changed his financial situation. Now, he didn't need to rely so heavily on Parliament for money, so he was more free to exert his royal authority. It also helped that he had pulled some members of Parliament to his side. The first thing Richard did was go after the Lord's appellant and put them on trial for treason. Unsurprisingly, all were found guilty. Warwick was exiled, Arundel was executed, and his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, was imprisoned, where he died mysteriously under the care of Norfolk. Norfolk and Henry Bolingbroke were the two youngest members of the Lord's Appellant. Richard spared them because they switched to his side at the last minute. With his new supportive Parliament, Richard was able to reverse pretty much all of the decisions made by the Merciless Parliament. He now had more power than ever, and he wasted no time abusing it. He started taking money from wherever he could to fund his lavish lifestyle. He made anyone and everyone even tangentially involved in the rebellion pay for pardons. For those he found particularly annoying, he made them sign blank documents that he could later fill in with whatever he wanted. They were blank checks that Richard could cash at any time. He also secured lifelong subsidies on all wool, one of England's biggest trades. Richard was now the powerful king that he wanted to be. And this is where Shakespeare's play starts. The Duke of Norfolk was fearful of taking blame for Gloucester's death, so he decided to turn to his good friend, Bolingbroke. This was a bad move. Bolingbroke immediately reported the conversation to the king and charged Norfolk with treason and stealing money from the king. Norfolk denied everything and demanded a trial by combat. This was unusual, but Richard, never the one to miss out on a spectacle, allowed preparation for the duel to go on for months. At the very last moment, he halted the fight. He exiled Norfolk for life and Bolingbroke for ten years. Shortly after this debacle, John of Gaunt, Bolingbroke's father, fell ill and died. Since Bolingbroke isn't there, Richard decides to take Bolingbroke's inheritance for the crown. This was the biggest mistake Richard could have made. John of Gaunt was one of the most powerful and wealthiest men in England. If his lands and titles could be stripped from his descendants, what would stop Richard from doing the same to any of the other nobles? Now, all of the most powerful people in the country didn't trust the king. Richard apparently didn't see the trouble brewing because he decided it would be a good time to head over to Ireland. While he was gone, none other than Henry Bolingbroke returned to England to take back what was his. It wasn't long at all before he had all the support he needed to take down the king. 
He was marching across England before word even reached Richard that there was a problem. Richard returned to England as quickly as possible, but was caught off guard and held up in a castle. Most of Richard's favorites were fled or dead. Richard's army was tired from the fighting in Ireland, so he had dismissed them. He thought another big army was coming through Wales, but they heard a rumor that he had died. So most of them abandoned the cause. Richard had little choice but to surrender to Bolingbroke. At the start, Bolingbroke claimed that he just wanted what was rightfully his. However, once Richard was imprisoned, it became abundantly clear that he wanted to be made king. All the other nobles weren't just going to let that happen. There was a sort of system for deciding these things, and Bolingbroke was not next in line. Bolingbroke tried a couple times to get himself named the legitimate heir by Parliament, but they just weren't ready to depose a sitting king. Richard would have to abdicate. After months of imprisonment, Richard eventually did abdicate to Bolingbroke. He was placed under house arrest, where he died of starvation. And just like that, Henry IV became king. And thus ends the story of Richard II. I know I glossed over the end there, but it's basically all covered in the play. If you want more historical accuracy, my sources will be listed in the description below and on my blog. Next time, we really are going to talk about the comedy of errors and what makes it magnificently bananas. That episode will be uploaded two Mondays from now. If you need some more Shakespeare fun in the meantime, please check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at ripegoodscholar. If you liked what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss an episode, please hit the subscribe button. If you really liked what you heard, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps get this podcast recommended to others. Talk to you next time. For our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art.